One, welcome to Grace Church this evening. It's great to see you here. For those of you that are here with us on campus, I'd like to say welcome. And for those of you that are joining us via live stream, we say welcome to you as well. I want to give you just a couple of announcements, and uh, then we will stand uh, before Brother Ben comes for our Bible study this evening. Uh, we do have a very special prayer request that we would like to bring to you and, and have all of you join with us in prayer. But before we do that, just a couple of announcements. First of all, um, service this coming Wednesday, the 23rd, has been dismissed due to the Thanksgiving holidays. For those of you that will be in town, please keep that in mind. And also, our Grace Church Christmas service, which we are calling God With Us, will be held on Sunday, December 18th. Going to be a red-letter day full of great preaching, good music, and um, just a lot of good happenings here. So please keep that in mind. And as always, you can stay tuned with what's going on here at Grace Church, either by going to the events tab on our website or by checking out our Grace Church app. And uh, you can get that on your smart device. Stand with me this evening, if you wouldn't mind. We want to bring a special prayer request to you this evening. Um, Brother Jeremy and Mr. Felipe Shield. And uh, this is the church that Sister Fallon Starnes grew up in. They have some very serious health. And uh, we're asking, uh, they, they've requested prayer all of um, all of us tonight to join in prayer ask for God to enter uh, to intervene and to let healing virtue flow so let's pray together Lord we thank you tonight that we can call on your name you are the healer you are the great physician Lord you shaped these bodies you knit them together in the womb Lord you knew that there was what the problem was and what the answer needed to be before they were even aware so we ask for your healing virtue to flow. God, we ask for your peace to be with them and with their families. Lord, we ask for a divine touch that no one can explain, God, that, that gives you the glory, Lord, and, and demonstrates your power. Lord, in Jesus' name, we ask that you move on behalf of Brother Jeremy and Sister Felicia Shields. Tonight, in Jesus' name, let them feel a touch, Lord, and let your power be displayed in Jesus' name. Amen. Remain standing this evening as Brother Ben comes. God bless you. Praise the Lord, everybody. Before we get into our lesson tonight, I want to ask you to pray with me, and then I'm going to have you be seated. Heavenly Father, we are so, we are so thankful, Lord Jesus, for your presence, dear God, for the help, Lord, that you give us, dear God. Help us, dear God, to be malleable in your hands tonight, Lord Jesus. Give us an open heart, dear Lord. I pray, dear Lord, that there are no obstacles, Lord Jesus, between us and you, dear Lord. Let the ministry of your spirit, Lord Jesus, accomplish what it intends to do, Lord, in your precious and holy name. In Jesus' name, amen. Good to be here tonight. Good to be able to speak to you. The Lord has put something on my heart. Uh, very serious. You may be seated. Sorry. Um, so what are we going to do here tonight? We're going to, we're going to reach an awareness. We're going to reach an awareness. The, uh, the awareness of truth and the awareness of fiction. And we're going to have an awareness or a realization of the problems with caricatures 
And I'll get to that word. If you don't know it, don't, don't feel bad. I kind of messed with my daughter tonight. We're going to have uh, understand the problems with caricatures and counterfeits. That's what we're going to do. The reality is, before we get into that, we have to understand that we are very, very fortunate here tonight. We are a people who have been gifted with an awareness of God. We've been gifted with an awareness and an understanding of that which is holy. Not a vague peripheral consciousness of some potential galactic engineer that may have affected the development of life on this planet. That's not what we have an awareness of. We have been alerted to the existence of the singular sovereign being that is the origin of all that surrounds us. Even the senses that we use to discover our reality were designed into us by this immensely powerful eternal being. When you look around you to, to gaze and wonder at the world around you, you're doing it with eyes that God put in your head. Our awareness of the natural world around us has been gifted to us by God. We are also fortunate that in that this all-powerful, this all-present, this all-knowing being has not just allowed us an awareness of his existence, but has given humanity actual knowledge of him. He has given us knowledge of his name. We, are, we know the name of God. We have, have you ever stopped and, and thought about that? You could not demand it. You couldn't require it of God. And yet this immense entity has given you his name and expects you to call on him. We know that God and we know that his name is Jesus. But the fact is our good fortune doesn't stop there. Our creator and our Lord has also given us awareness of his attributes. He doesn't just give us his name and go, to, go about his business. He tells us about him. He tells us about, gives us an awareness of his attributes and his, his character. He gives us an awareness of his nature. As well as, uh, as the expectations that he has for us. These are all part of our repository of, new, of human comprehension of God. We know all these things now. We're not running around ignorant of how we got here. God has given us this information. We know about God. We know things about our Lord. We know that he is holy. We know that God is holy. We know that God is uncompromising. We know that God is kind. We know that God is merciful. We know that God is good to us. He is good. There are so many aspects of his reality that we have been allowed to know that it is really humbling, in my opinion. We, we do not have a creator that stands far removed from the toils and the pain and the struggles or simply the experiences of those intelligent beings who he's Created. He is not some cool intellect off in the distance watching us toil around in the mud. That's not who our God is. 
We have been given an accurate vision of God through the precious gift of his inspired word. We know who he is and we know what he's done. We also know what he desires of you and I as, as well. And this is very important. We know what he desires of us. As well as what we were meant to be in the beginning. Genesis chapter 1 verses 20, verse 27 says this. So God created man in his what? No. Commenter, commentator uh, K.A. Matthews says this and I love this. He says, the crown of God's handiwork is human life. The creation account shows an ascending order of significance within human life, as with human life as the final, thus pinnacle, creative act. This is not to imbue you with, with a sense of elitism, but it is, it's a humbling thing to understand God's intention for humanity. We know through reading the account of our creation, that the creation of man and woman was a deliberate act by the engineer of the cosmos, not to simply add another living being to the planet, but to be something unique in this world. Genesis chapter 2, verses 7 and 8 says this, And the Lord God formed man. He formed man. This didn't just speak us into existence. He exerted effort in the creation of his image on this planet. He formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living soul. Verse 8, and the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden. And there he put the man. He put the man who he had formed. He formed us, he breathed into our nostrils, and then he set us in a specific place. These words used in the revelation of our origin were specific. He formed and he breathed and he put. These words describe specific intent. Humanity was not created just as another aspect of the grand creative form. We are not made and then just allowed to aimlessly roam the landscapes of this new world. Our bodies and our minds, our mental and emotional capacities were deliberately formed and they were formed for a purpose. I don't know if you ever consider that or you ever think about it in the toil of your day. You were created for a purpose. Humanity was created to be the image of God on this planet. The human figure, the human figure has the fingerprints of God upon him. You are not simply flung into existence through the force of his divine will. Humanity was built from the ground up and imbued with breath by God Almighty. Not to simply exist and cohabitate with everything else, but to have dominion. God intentionally placed man upon this rock to represent him. This is a very important point for the rest of this lesson, for us to understand that there has to be accuracy in the image of God on this planet. We were placed here 
to represent him. This awareness, this awareness that we have, it provides us with a foundation. It's the reason I'm telling you this. It provides us a standard by which all things are compared. It gives us the accurate understanding of the original without distortion. We know who God is. We know that God exists. We know who he is. We understand his attributes and his nature. And we know why we're supposed to be here. That is a humbling awareness. It, it, it's something that I think about, honestly. It should have this, this, this realization. It should have instilled within mankind an overwhelming imperative, an a, a, a overwhelming drive to the accuracy of our connection and our interaction with God. But we have to be aware of some other things as well. One of those things is that we in humanity are inclined toward drift. We drift from our intended purpose. Which brings me to the meat kind of my lesson, and I'm hoping to get you out here at a decent hour. I say that all the time, and I really think I can do it tonight. It brings me to the meat of my lesson. We need to look at, the, at an end-time problem, an end-time problem. Before we do that, I need to establish something. We need to establish something about value and worth. We all know the value of something that is authentic. The original is normally worth more than the copy, right? The original is worth more than the copy. The estimated value of Leonardo da Vinci's iconic Mona Lisa painting, this astonished me. When I read this, the value of that painting is approximately $834 million. That's right. Some paint on a canvas is worth nearly a billion dollars. That's if you can get it. It's in the Louvre. Good luck trying to buy it. You'd have to pay nearly a billion dollars for that actual painting if it was ever considered for sale. Van Gogh's Starry Night is estimated to be worth over $100 million. And you can go through many different iconic paintings. These things have real intrinsic value. But a caricature, I wish I had brought, thought to put some on the screen, a caricature of those paintings is, is not worth that much money. If I gave you my rendition of the Mona Lisa, you would not pay $834 million for it. You would probably recognize it as uh, my caricature, my depiction of the Mona Lisa, but it would, it would re this may shock you, but it would be worthless. It would. Why? What is a caricature? a caricature? A caricature is a picture or representation of a person or thing in which certain striking characteristics are exaggerated in order to create a comic a comedic or grotesque effect. We know what it is because we recognize these exaggerated aspects of it, but we know it's not the original. We know what the character is supposed to represent, the features that are so distinct 
in the original, those things that caused the original to be so unique and, and valuable or in the caricature, embellished and overstated, so to make identification easy. I, I actually was looking at a couple of them. One was Albert Einstein, and they exaggerated his nose and his stance and that, that large uh, head of white hair. You knew who it was. And Abraham Lincoln with the distinctive jawline and beard. And you knew who it was. It wasn't a photograph. They weren't striving for accuracy. They were trying to elicit recognition from you, and they, and they were able to do it. Caricatures inspire recognition of the original, but are never meant to be accurate representations of the original. Now, that's a caricature. What about a counterfeit? Counter counterfeits are something else. These are things made in imitation of the original so as to be passed off fraudulently or deceptively as the genuine article. They are designed, ladies and gentlemen, to appear authentic so as to be accepted and valued as the original. It's intended not only to you elicit recognition, for you to think this is the real thing. What's that end time problem I'm talking about? Scripture provides for us more than an awareness of God and those glorious aspects of his reality. The word of God also provides an awareness of things beyond our unique position within the matrix of creation. It provides all those things, all those inspiring aspects of God's nature and characteristics and who we are and our unique position, but it provides other things as well. The word of God extends to us a warning, an awareness as to our environment and the times that we may find ourselves. So, it, so the word of God provides us the original, accurate depiction of God and who we are and the glorious things that God does. But there is a tremendous amount of scripture in the New Testament and some in the Old that tells us things that we need to be concerned with. Things that we need to be aware of, especially in the time in which we live. The Lord in his profound goodness does not allow his children to exist in a state of ignorance concerning the hour of the end. We are provided within the holy word of God an awareness of the things to look for. And I'm not an end time preacher. I don't preach about prophecy but this was really burned into my mind and into my consciousness. He gives us methods of assessment, not only of the time, but of our surroundings and our environment. He wants us to know where we're living and what time we're living in. This is a gracious act of God. How often do we pay attention to it? In 2 Timothy, the Apostle Paul writes to Timothy and, and provides him with a criterion for the end of ages. He gives Timothy something to look for to gauge whether or not the end is upon him and to prepare him for his environment. I use this as a text because 
We use this phrase often in our conversations as we discuss the climate of our culture and the temperament and the zeitgeist of our time. We talk about end times. How many conversations have you had in the last year talking about where we must be in the end times? A show of hands? Yeah, I think everybody. How many times have you heard over pulpit heard over podium an appeal to attention because of the expected nearness of the Lord's return. It is not only preached, but it is felt deep within our hearts. We, it, 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 we feel this. We feel the pressure of the end times upon us. We recognize that we are near to the rapture, that we're near to the return of our Lord. Does it move us, though? This concept of the terminus of the age of grace, it resonates within the church, not only because of observation, but because of the spiritual urgency that we feel. Not only because of the things that we look around and the things that we see, the things that we're concerned about, but that deep move of God's spirit within us. It provides us a sense of urgency of the nearness of his return. We look around us. We look externally for those waypoints toward eternity. We, we, we comb through the scripture. What does it say about earthquakes? What does it say about wars? And, and all these things are true and they do point to the time in which we live. And Timothy was given a list. And I think this list, it, it's, it's wise for us to evaluate it in some detail and to think about it. Because I believe it, it points in a direction that we may not realize. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 5 says this. This is Paul speaking to Timothy about the end times. This know also, that in the last days perilous times shall come. Right? I mean, have we encountered perilous times over the last few years? Know this, and the last. Now, there are scholars and theologians that say that the, they, they interpret the last days uh, in, in two ways. Both of them are necessary or are actually correct. One is that from the initiation of the church age to the return of Christ, that is considered within the span of, of all human history. That is the last days. And that's true. But there is also a more acute aspect to that. We are in the very last of the last days. It's not some vague thing that we have to be concerned about, perhaps for our children, our grand. We're, we should live in expectation of it right now, right? Do we consider that in our prayer lives and in our walk with God? And is this something that initiates that sense of urgency within us? So first, first Timothy, uh, 2 Timothy 3, verse 1, this know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves. 
What's this talking about? This just means unreasonably and extraordinarily self-centered people. Do we know any of those? Don't name any names and don't look around the church. Just saying. Okay? Let's keep it civil. For men shall be lovers of their own selves. They will be covetous. They will love money. Love money. They'll be boasters and they'll be proud. These men in the last days shall be blasphemers. The next three words is kind of shocking if you think about it. We need to have the kids in here. It says disobedient to parents. You think your kids talking back to you and being disobedient to you is, is irrelevant to God? Look where he places this in the context of things that we need to be concerned about. Blasphemers, disobedience to parents. People will be in the last days unthankful. They'll be real receive things, but they just won't be thankful for it. They'll think they're entitled to it. Isn't that shocking? Entitled. Do we have an entitlement mentality in this country right now? People will be unholy. They'll be unconcerned about holy things. Verse 3 says, they'll be without natural affection. What does this mean? It means they're not going to be able to love properly. They're not going to understand what real love is about. They'll be truce breakers, they'll be false accusers, they'll be incontinent, they'll be fierce. This basically means they'll be lacking self-control, they'll be incredibly indulgent. They won't have any control over themselves. It goes on to say in verse 3 that they'll be despisers of those that are good. Those people that are trying to do it right, they'll despise them. It's almost as if the person doing good is an accusation against them, Right? Verse 4, they'll be traitors, they'll be heady, they'll be high-minded. This basically means they'll, they'll, they will be people who are rashly impulsive and conceited. And the last, last part of this scripture is so sad. It says they'll be lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. Think about the things that bracketed verses 2 through 4. It's a distorted view of love. They'll be lovers of their own selves in verse 2, and it ends, it starts with lovers of their own selves in verse 2, and it ends with lovers of pleasure more than God. They'll love themselves, and they'll love the pleasure associated and gratifying that more than lovers of God. Now, that's keys in on where this is going if you think about that last statement. Lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. We look at that list, and then we look into this world, right? We, we were sitting in our church pews, and we look at this list, and then we look externally. We look at this world, and we confidently exclaim our recognition of, the, of, of these selfish and these destructive qualities. We exclaim that they have become incredibly pervasive in our culture and the rest of civilization, Right? We point to the outlandish decadence of celebrity. It is exhausting. The decadence of celebrity in this culture, their, their overt valuation of wealth and self 
beyond any sense of reasonable measure. We recognize the promotion of pride and personal human accomplishment without any consideration to humility. Look what I've done. Look, that's what you hear uh, constantly in social media and, 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 and on television. A constant promotion of unbridled materialism and human achievement. Who here has not heard the bold blasphemies declared under the guise of comedy or freedom of expression? Things I would be, be cautious to think about are said on, on, on comedic stages with complete indifference to the reality of God. Children have become indifferent. I don't mean no offense by this, really. But children have become indifferent to the position of their parents. Their behavior has, has become almost feral, completely unrestrained. We see and declare the world around us decoupled from reason and from sense. We declare it from our position in the church. We declare it immoral and we declare it unethical and, and without interest in that which is holy. It's so easy to evaluate this perverse world and, and make the confident declaration of the impending end and the triumphant return of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's easy to, to look around us and evaluate the world around us and realize because of their antics and behavior that we are in the end times and God's fixing to punish this world, right? Right. That is true. But there's one real problem. There's a problem with the way we we export the negative connotations of these four verses of Scripture. There's a real problem with it. The problem lies in verse 5. Verse 5 says all of these things denote people having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. Having these people who are, let's look at, take a look at it again, these, these extraordinarily self-centered lovers of money that are boasters, that are proud, they're without natural affection, they're false accusers, they lack self-control, they're despisers of that which is good, they're lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, they love themselves. These are people that have a form of godliness but deny the power thereof. This passage of scripture is in reality an admonition for self-reflection and evaluation within that which calls itself religion and the church. Paul is extending a warning to those who live at the end of time, he's extending a warning to us through Timothy. 
That warning wasn't meant for Timothy. That warning was meant for us. Paul is extending a warning to those who live at the end to be aware that there will be a time in which caricatures and counterfeits of faith will exist. A time in which having a form of the original will be sufficient. A moment on the threshold of eternity in which a careful approximation of truth, a subtle approximation of truth, will be enough to satisfy the need for the reality of God and actual relationship with Jesus. I really didn't want to preach this lesson tonight. I've got to be tell, I gotta tell you. I struggled with it. Brother Murphy, this is the first time that I've ever preached that I actually almost picked a different lesson. And the Lord kind of slapped me around a little bit. We started this lesson with the establishment of the original, the reality of God and his accurate attributes and nature. Now we must become introspective and, and look within. We must make the assessment and see if the form of our externals is authenticated by the power of God within us. Paul is speaking of a time, speaking of an atmosphere where looking like a Christian is sufficient. A time when the internal structure of the heart hasn't been moved and changed through repentance and the ministry of God's indwelling spirit. It's just a form of godliness without that moving, living spirit within people. If we're courageous enough to look, we can recognize in this world the caricatures of Christianity pretty easily, right? We can. They have been given designations and been given qualifiers, most notably the promoters of the prosperity gospel. Individuals who are intensely interested with living their best life. Please understand, I don't mind if you live your best life. That's fine. But these are people who are intensely interested in living their best lives. This is, of course, a life without the onerous burden of kingdom sacrifice or submission to the expectations of God. It is a religious movement that promotes materialism and advancement in this world without incorporating God into it. It is a church body, a church body that has the external characteristics of piety and a structure that approximates the things of God but lacks his presence. We're Pentecostal people. If the Spirit of God does not saturate this place, we might as well shut the doors. This world doesn't need another approximation of Christianity. It needs something that is real, something that stands out, something that is an accurate image of God. 
can't help but get a little shouty. They have these people, they have these caricatures, they have established their own private interpretations of God's word. One that allows for the inclusion of thought and behavior that is antagonistic to the actual word. Well, that's a problematic scripture. Well, we just won't pay attention to that one. We'll just retranslate it so that it accommodates what we want to accommodate. We'll still call ourselves Christian. It doesn't really matter if, if, if God's spirit is really in the mix. Those who oppose them, whether it is in the street, whether it's over the pulpit or the podium, those who oppose them are marginalized and are labeled as artifacts of a more ignorant time. That's those Bible believers, those fundamentalists. It is a people, these people, you recognize these caricatures, you recognize them as Christians by their own measures and metrics, not by the standard of the original. Remember the standard of the original? This position and movement is dangerous, but so is those who are simply counterfeit. Paul speaks of those who promote themselves as the real thing, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. Having a form of godliness. He is referring to those whose religious life consists in externals only, knowing no spiritual dynamic. It is in this personal environment that the door is wide open to the interests of sins, the sins referred to in the first four verses of Scripture. People whose, whose, whose religiosity is an externals only, they look like good Christian people. They've got the camouflage down. This concept of the image bearers of God losing the internal power of connection to the Lord and being satisfied with a thin veneer of Christ's likeness is revealed in the ancient text of the Old Testament. This isn't something new. This has occurred in the past. The children of Israel were a people whose identity was affixed to them by God. They were also a people who drifted from their origin and they became counterfeit. The children of Israel given to us as a, to educate us, ladies and gentlemen. Malachi 1 and 6 says this. A son honors his father and a servant his master. God says, if then I am the father, where is my honor? And if I am a master... Where is my reverence? Where is my honor and where is my reverence? God was speaking to people who were supposed to know him in truth. They were not casually associated with Jehovah God. They were given their very identity by, them, by him. 
much like you and I. I am a different person having entered into relationship with God. My identity has been affixed to me by God. I know Him in a truth that some unfortunately do not. The Israelites were a people who were living in the right place, who had the right name and the correct pedigree. They went to church. They were the, went to the right church. And they had a, a long line of people they went to church with them. They had an association and a knowledge of Yahweh, of God. They understand the mechanism of worship. And yet there was this deep deficiency within them. They were supposed to be the image bearers of God, but they had a deep deficiency within them. It was revealed in the quality of their sacrifice to God in those end times for them. But that was simply a, the symptom of an underlying problem of attitude and mental orientation. There was a mental and a spiritual disease that had infected the Israelites, the people of God. It had metastasized throughout their culture and had caused them to approach God. Pay attention, ladies and gentlemen. It caused them to approach God as an idea rather than a reality. They were satisfied with a form of godliness without the underlying problem. The priests still put on their vestments. The people still brought sacrifices. But it was all a show. Verse 7 says, You offer defiled food on my altar. But say, in what way have we defiled you by saying the table of the Lord is contemptible? Verse 8, and when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you offer the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Why does this matter? What the Israelites brought as a sacrifice, it had to pass two important tests. What they brought, it had to be the first and it had to be the best. These people who were the image bearers of God when they brought sacrifices, God determined that it had to be the first and it had to be the best. Nothing else mattered. It had to be the firstborn animal or the first fruit of the crops of the or, or the orchards. God gets his share first and, because he and he alone is God. To bring God a gift of inferior quality would say that one did not think much of God regardless of the vestments and clothing of priesthood. The quality of the gift indicates the value the giver places on the one receiving the gift, doesn't it? It revealed the internal accuracy of the external declaration. It didn't matter that they wore the clothing of the priest when they threw a defiled, inappropriate sacrifice on the altar. They had a form of godliness, but they, de they 
denied the power. The declaration of the person's devotion to God is measured not only by the external, physical, and verbal appearance of Christianity, but by the power of God working from within. You can tell a person that you are a Christian, that you are a Holy Ghost-filled person all day long, but if there is no power of God working within you, It undermines your declaration. Just think about verse 5, about form and power. The power of God is expressed in ways that change. We know the form. We've got the form. People have the form. What about the power? The power of God is expressed in ways that change the follower and the faith-filled. The form of godliness is supposed to be a consequence of the internal work of God. Let me say that again. The form of godliness, the externals, is supposed to be a consequence of the internal work of God. The power of God is in the gospel of God. Romans 1 and 16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. To deny the power and retain only the form is simply robing ourselves in Christian camouflage in order to blend into an environment that we are in truth rejecting. Why blend into an environment that you don't really believe or not allowing to change you. To have the power, to have the power, means to submit to and have faith in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. It means yielding to the sanctifying work of His Spirit as we walk in relationship with Him. I was studying for this. A commentary said here, the power, talking about the power, refers to that same power which those who only have an outward semblance of piety toward God and not the inward reality refuse to allow access to their lives that they might be saved. It's as if they would rather just look like something that is Christ-like rather than to actually be in relationship with Him. If we have the inward reality of an actual relationship with Jesus Christ. We will evaluate our lives each day by the light and scrutiny of Scripture. We would confess and forsake evil thoughts and evil actions that do not please God and are in actuality antagonistic to His nature. We'll evaluate ourselves. We will examine our lives and determine if Paul's list in, in verses 2 through 4 are expressed in any way within us. We find ourselves deficient. If we have the power, if we find ourselves deficient, we would yield to that power, seek forgiveness, and move forward in relationship and triumph. Paul expresses to Timothy in 
by extension to you and I, the depraved condition of those who at the end have chosen to replicate the countenance or shape of that which is holy, yet within their affections are distorted. Their love is misplaced. Instead of loving God with the entirety of their heart, their soul, their mind, and their strength, their love is anemic and directed towards self and money and pleasure. They are a church in appearance only, satisfied with the raiment of priesthood, but willing to offer a, a blemished sacrifice. Within this world, there has been created a fiction. It claims to walk as the image of the Lord, to be his ambassadors as determined by Scripture. However, however, our society would have you believe that love means tolerance, that grace really means permission. His holy mercy is reduced to just an open door. The beauty of forgiveness is morphed into a life that is somehow safe from consequence. This reduction removes the emotionally cumbersome aspect of fear and respect and reverence. You have to understand something. We serve God. He does not serve us. It allows for a man to create a church experience that is satisfactory to them but isn't concerned about whether it is satisfactory to God. This world is content with approximations to holy things rather than existing within an environment of absolute accuracy to the expectations of our Creator. Do we want to be the accurate images of God? We must take great care, Grace Church, that this spiritual apathy does not infect the holy body of Christ because we are being called to contain power as well as form. We are being called to contain power as well as form. We are being called to contain power as well as form. We are being challenged to deliberately regard our attitude and our mentality toward our sovereign God. Many of us are in possession of, of the promise. We are no longer enslaved under the weight of sin, having been liberated by the gospel of God. And this is where we stand. On the precipice of decision in a, in a time of counterfeits and caricatures. We are at the juncture of accepted compromise and casual indifference to our holy God, or a commitment that is commensurate with His holy reality. Which will you choose? Do we stand with the end-time approximation to the true church? Do we stubbornly minimize and ignore the tender, real presence of God so that we can hold to the established religiosity of this world? Matthew 15 and 8 is a terrifying scripture. It says these people draw nigh to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips. But their heart is far from me. 
This was an accusation not made by a disciple, not made through one of the writers of the New Testament. It was made by Christ himself. It was made to those who were supposed to recognize his manifestation. The Lord was pointing out that a serious disconnect had occurred between the heart and the head. That that disconnect can happen if we're not careful. He is explaining that having a form of godliness without the internal power is unacceptable. Do we want the, that apostolic move of God's spirit in our lives that is necessary in our, in our age? Or do we allow the spirit of the world to subdue us and corrupt our minds toward God? We are not here, ladies and gentlemen, to produce a religious product. We are not here to impress the congregation across the street with our polished services. We are not engaged in religious one-upsmanship. We are here because of the grace and the gospel of God. We are not meant to be counterfeits, but authentic, accurate images. I'm going to close with this. The as I was studying, I came across a minister who wrote this about this particular subject. His name is Stephen Cole. I don't know what denomination he is, but this resonated with me. And I want to share it with you. He said, the only antidote against the insidious evil of the enemy is the true gospel of Jesus Christ and the power of God's word and truth. Make sure that you have experienced the transforming power of the gospel through faith in Christ and, may I add, the indwelling spirit his indwelling spirit. Make sure that daily you feed on his word, allowing it to confront your sinful thoughts, allowing it to confront your sinful thoughts and your attitudes and your words and your behavior. Walk in personal reality with Christ, being filled with the Holy Spirit, growing in the fruit of the Spirit in your character. Be brutally honest with your thought life before God, taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. He goes on to say, confess your sins to God and seek forgiveness of those you wrong. That kind of genuine walk with God is the only way to avoid the danger of empty religion. I'll say once again, we are here because of the grace and the gospel of God. We are not meant to be counterfeits or caricatures, but authentic, accurate images. God bless you. You are dismissed. Break the tension there. Join the song they're already singing. Holy, holy, holy are you, Lord. Just about.